Hey, Chris, Adam, Rachel, how are you guys? It's been so long. Hey, man. We just wanted to, uh, you know, check on you. Yeah, ever since we finished Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Minute, you've kind of gone MIA. Yeah, what have you uh, been up to? Oh, man, I've been so busy. I, I started rereading the Turtle comics, and, and I got the TMNT 90 movie score on vinyl, and I've been listening to that, like, nonstop. I watched 190 episodes of the 80s cartoon, the entire Nick series, beat the arcade game, beat the NES game, and Turtles in Time, like, three times each, watched the 2007 CGI movie, and watched Turtles 90 again, like, four more times. Oh, God. Dude, y you need to take a break. I, I even watched both Michael Bay movies. Again. Oh, oh no. God. Ugh. God, guys, he's gone off the rails. I mean, truth be told, I've kind of felt a little directionless since the whole minute a day thing ended. Guys, guys, we need to help him. He's falling apart. He needs structure, and I think there's only one way to do it. Oh, please don't say it. We, we have, have to, to do, do Turtles, too. A minute at a time. I love this plan. I'm glad to be a part of it. Hey, hey, what are you guys whispering about? It's okay, Scott. We're here to help you. We're going to do The Secret of the Ooze a minute at a time. Think of it as like your daily dose of turtle therapy. It's like a sequel about the sequel. You might even say it'd be our... Uh, oh, no, 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 no. Second time around. I love you guys. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Minute Season 2, a podcast discussing the secret of the ooze, one minute at a time. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Kawa Sequelbunga! Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski. And I'm Todd Mack. And this week we're discussing Conor O'Malley and the monster from the movie A Monster Calls. All right. Welcome back, Todd. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited to talk about this film. I really like it. Uh, I kind of remember this film coming out, and I've had a few people say they really like this movie. But when I was looking into some of the trivia about it, I realized why I never saw the movie because almost no one in America did. <laughs> Spoiler warning. <laughs> it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy that more people have not seen this movie. So I finally watched it in preparation for this episode, and it is a good movie. Yeah. And uh, I really strong visuals in, in some parts of the storytelling that we'll talk about. Uh, but Todd, do you remember how you first came to either the novel the movie is based on or the movie itself? Yeah, so um, I'm always, I'm, I try to stay uh, abreast of um, Spanish uh, films and Spanish filmmakers. And this is directed by J.A. Bayona. Uh, and I was looking at uh, lists of uh, Spanish films that have won lots of awards. And this is uh, at the top of those lists. And I thought, Monster Calls, really? Like a kid's movie? I don't know. And then, <laughs> uh, and then I watched it and I thought, my goodness, that is really good. And um, Bayona has made, uh, has made just a few films and they've all been uh, really good with the exception of the, the newest Jurassic Park movie, which he did. Um, <laughs> But I don't, 
I don't know if you want. Uh, do you want to get into like the successful film? But about, well, yeah, by a long shot. So his first film is called El Orfanato, the Orphanage. It's a horror film, and uh, it premiered at Cannes, and it got a ten-minute standing ovation at Cannes. Uh, it's a really, it's a very, very scary movie. Um, and he made it with all of these. So like uh, Oscar Fauda uh, did the all the design and. Um, and uh, there, and it was it's this just this young team of filmmakers, and everybody thought, my goodness, these guys really know how to make films. And then uh, they followed that one up with uh, a film called The Impossible, which is about the tsunami in uh, Thailand. So and it Ewan has McGregor and Tom Holland, right? You McGregor and Tom Holland, very young Tom Holland, but really good Tom Holland. Um, and that's a pretty amazing film. And then, uh, and then he made a monster calls and then, and then he got a big budget to make the Jurassic park movie. And, um, I think they, they saw people saw monster calls and thought, Oh, this guy knows how to do monsters. And so then they said, let's do uh let's do a whole bunch of dinosaurs. And I, I, visually, I think the, the, that the Jurassic park film is fine. Uh, it's not, uh, it's not like the, the most compelling story ever told, <laughs> but, um, but Bayona is he's he's sort of riding high right now, and uh, this film is basically I mean I consider it a Spanish film. I show it in my Spanish classes. <laughs> um, the whole all of the crew is uh, is based in Spain. Uh, this film was filmed in Spain and in uh, England. Um, but I just I really like the way that uh, I mean visually it's astounding. And I think this story is uh, really compelling. Patrick Ness did the screenplay for this, and he's also the author of the novel. Um, and it really almost kind of follows beat for beat the novel, except that um, I feel like Patrick Ness kind of uh, like took a second pass at the story and actually developed some things in the film that aren't developed in the in the book, but kind of give more texture to the characters. And uh, I, I, I just think it's really well done. So that was a long, uh, <laughs> that was a long introduction to uh, how I came to this. All right. Well, for any listeners who are not familiar, a monster calls was released in 2016. And as has been noted, it was written by Patrick Ness and directed by J a Bayona. It is based on the novel, the same name written by Patrick Ness. And it starred Louis McDougall as Connor O'Malley, Felicity Jones as Lizzie Clayton, Sigourney Weaver as grandma Clayton and Liam Neeson providing the voice of the monster. And it tells the story of a boy facing trauma who is visited by a monster who tells him three stories. And, I will just note, we were chatting a little bit about this right before we started recording. There is quite a bit of thematic and subject matter overlap with the graphic novel, I Kill Giants. That graphic novel was released in 2010. This novel was released in 2011. I think it's just some simultaneous evolution in pop culture. (laughs) Yeah. Two different creators. Well, uh, Joe Kelly and J.M. Ken Nimura did I Kill Giants, the graphic novel. Patrick Ness wrote this novel, uh, A Monster Calls, and they're dealing with a lot of similar things. And that just happens in pop culture. I don't think one is ripping off the other. And there's definitely enough um, distinctiveness that I I don't feel like it's a waste of time to talk about one after we've talked about the other at all. There's uh, some some really compelling aspects of this that are not present in the I Kill Giants uh, graphic novel that we talked about about a half year ago with Mav um, on this podcast. 
Okay. One other side note, Todd, this, uh, assuming our schedule holds true, this is going to be episode number 252 and you, uh, retired after episode number 200 as the regular co-host. So it's almost been a year, <laughs> uh, <laughs> since, since, uh, your, your retirement. So, uh, welcome back for this episode. Thank you. And I think I'm, in the last year uh, you've been I'm our most frequent be guest. So it's not like you really left, left. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what, it, uh, it definitely feels, um, my life is moving at a different pace than it was when I was recording every week. <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, it's, it's just a, it's a big commitment to, to do this every week. And I applaud you for continuing on in the cause. And, uh, yeah, I, you're, you're always welcome to, to dip a toe back in whenever you want to. All right, a little bit of trivia. Um, uh, Patrick Ness published the novel Monster Calls in 2011, and then he adapted his own novel as a screenplay, which I always wonder what that process is like to try and transform a story that you were creating in one medium and transform it into a different medium. And like you said, it, it feels like to you that he, he was able to strengthen some thematic elements of the story, maybe, or, or some character um, aspects of it. Yeah, we but, can. I mean, we'll get into that more uh when we when we dig into the novel, but I really it really feels like the film is an evolution of the novel. It's not just an adaptation, but he's at, he's he's really carefully thought about um, you know what works in film. What can what can I do in film that I can't do in the novel that can strengthen the story and strengthen the characters? I think he did a really really good job. And I don't know how much of some of the, for me, the most fascinating aspects of the film were when the monster tells its stories and we get different styles of storytelling happening. Yes. Um, some really stunning animation. Um, and, and I don't know how much of that was in the, the screenplay and how much of that was um, Bayona uh, working. Cause I know he's noted for his visuals, mm-hmm. um, but that's, that's one area where I, I just know like the translation from novel to film, you're going to get something different in the monster telling stories in the film and in the way that they're, they're, portraying it on film versus what you'd read in a text yeah the the novel is um it's an illustrated novel and it's illustrated by what's his name he's a he's a famous illustrator jim k is the illustrator and um they they definitely took uh, bayona took a lot of cues from jim k's uh illustrations in this um and they're very the the illustrations are really um, kind of uh, what's the word I don't want to say rudimentary they they look a lot like the like Connor's drawings in the in the in the film which is not an accident yeah which is the child uh, you know drawing level yeah but it, but it's all it's kind of um, it's not super detailed mm-hmm. it's it's sort of done in really broad strokes. Uh, and it, it's super textured, uh, and um, I, th- I, I think one of one of the great successes of Bayona in in doing this transition from the novel to the to the film is what he's done visually and and being really true to what is in the novel, um, and and just kind of like I said earlier, like it's like an evolution. The film is an evolution of the novel, it, and that i just think it works all right well the movie when it was being released it was in the united states positively re- reviewed as an 86 percent rating on rot tomatoes but it bombed at the box office 
like in a completely unexpected way. It was expected to open to $10 million. That's what like all the weekend predictions had like, okay, it's gonna be 10 million, which would put it in the top five for the weekend. But then it only earned $2 million its first weekend, which put it at number 13 for the weekend at the U S box office. And then it was out of theaters within three weeks. And I can't understand what misfired in terms of making an audience connection in the United States. It made over $43 million at the international box office. And so that underperformance in the U.S. is just surprising uh, to me. I don't get it. I like. It, I don't know if it has to do with marketing. I mean, the story is compelling, and every part. I, I have not. I don't know anybody that has seen this movie and said, "Nah, I, I didn't like it." You know, like, uh, e- even if I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe the story doesn't. You don't find the story compelling, but just vis- even just visually, it's it's pretty astounding. And the I think that the acting is really good like there's nothing there's nothing in this film that stands out to me and says oh this is this is a total stinker like (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i I mean maybe i just have rose colored colored glasses because it's a spanish director and i and and you know i'll I'll take anything i can get but i really don't think that that's the case i I think uh i think this is really high quality film and i don't know why it didn't uh, it didn't do well but i'm like on a personal crusade yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to, to spread the word <laughs> to spread the word about this film yes i mean it's that much of a miss uh between like even studio estimates and and prognosticator estimates and where it landed i think a good chunk of it has to be marketing particularly when it did so well outside the united states yeah like that that difference for an english language film that was um you know a hollywood studio was distributing in the united states for it to make like i think in it, its end total was like barely over three million uh in the u.s but 43 million internationally like that is just a discrepancy you don't often see uh for english yeah, barely over three million is like studios it's like independent they're independent films that make that much. last year's robin hood film or something you know like <laughs> wow. like some bad king arthur remake or something yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, i mean two million dollars is is really that's it's that's pretty bad yeah <laughs> but but you know that that people people who know film looked at this and at Bayona's body of work and and I mean they gave him the keys to the Jurassic Park franchise which means you know somebody along the line says okay this guy knows how to make knows how to make movies and knows how to make movies that will make a lot of money yeah for Universal that's one of their biggest franchises that they're trusting uh to him yeah I'm I'm like that's a hundreds of million dollars uh franchise and so I I mean I think that they that they those executives looked at this and said, that's an aberration. We're just going to, we're going to give them the green light anyway. And that movie yeah. was pretty commercially successful also. Mm-hmm. Even if it wasn't okay. a huge critical success. All right. Well, before we do a plot summary for a monster calls, we want to thank you listeners for downloading this episode and for listening. And we especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters at any level receive access to our monthly quick casts, which are shorter episodes when we break down newly released films, trailers, or talk about TV shows we're watching or books we're reading. And we also give updates on our monthly fantasy box office. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss in a future episode. All right, so here we go. Full summary for Monster Calls, uh, though I do recommend the visuals are so stunning. If you can get access to this film, go ahead and watch it. All right, Connor, and he's, how old is he, like nine about is what I imagine. He's a boy 
This is a story of a boy too old to be a kid and too young to be a man. <laughs> no one has ever told a story about this age group, this transitional period ever. No, that's what the that's like the very first line of the novel. The, the Connor asks the monster, "How does it begin?" I know, but I think that is a summation of all buildings Roman literature. <laughs> I know. The monster says this story begins like so many others with a boy too old to be a kid and too young to be a man. I think he's like uh, 13. Okay, a little older than this. All right. Uh, Connor has a recurring nightmare about clinging to his mother before she falls off the edge of a cliff. When he wakes up from this nightmare, uh, he gets up and he goes and makes his mom breakfast, and she tells him that she'll be starting a new round of chemo soon, and his grandma will be coming to watch him. At school, Connor gets beat up by bullies. That night at 12.07 a.m., Connor is woken up by Liam Neeson's ent voice calling his name. Uh, and I don't know when Hollywood settled on what to do to actors' voices to make them sound like trees, but they've settled on it. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds very similar to uh to what we get in lord of the rings with the ends yeah i like it oh i like it i'm not saying it's wrong but i i just it's weird that we know what a tree sounds like when it's talking <laughs> uh a yew tree that connor can see outside of his window transforms into this giant tree monster the monster tells him that tells connor that he'll be vis- uh, coming to tell him three stories and then connor will tell the monster a fourth story and this fourth story will be the truth connor's truth what connor is most afraid of uh connor's grandma comes and says they need to talk about connor connor coming to live with her but he is not really interested in that conversation that night the monster comes and tells connor a story there was a kingdom where the king's sons died in battle and his only heir was a grandson the king's wife died of a broken heart after her sons had died and the king remarried when the king fell ill there were rumors the new queen was a witch who had poisoned him and the queen now wants to marry the prince, the king's grandson, to secure her place as queen. But the grandson runs away with a beautiful farmer's daughter. They slept under the branches of a yew tree, but when the prince wakes up, he finds the farmer's daughter has been murdered in the night. The prince rallies a mob to go and kill the queen, and the tree he slept under comes alive and goes with the mob to the city, and they attack uh, the queen. The monster says the queen was never seen again. Connor asks the monster to do something about his grandma who's staying at his house. Because uh, Connor's really connected with the idea of an evil grandma. <laughs> this <point. laughs> But the monster says, I'm not done with the story. And the monster says the queen was not killed. But the monster had grabbed her and carried her away to a place where she would never be recognized. Uh, Connor asks why the monster saved her. And the monster says the queen was innocent. The prince had killed the farmer's daughter to turn the kingdom against the queen. Connor asks if the queen was a witch who murdered the old king. And the monster says she might have been a witch. But the king died of old age. Connor asks how the story is going to help save him from his grandma. And the monster says... Connor does not need saving from her. <laughs> Connor's bullied at school again the next day. His mom's chemo isn't working and his dad is coming from America. Connor has to go stay with his grandma because his mom is staying at the hospital. Uh, grandma's house is immaculately tidy. She points to an antique grandfather clock that her family has had for generations and tells him not to touch it, which Chekhov's gun right there. <laughs> <laughs> Chekhov's grandfather clock. Yeah. Uh, Connor's dad comes and takes him out for dinner. They talk about Connor's half-sister, and his dad says he's trying to arrange for Connor to come to the U.S. to meet her. This gets Connor very excited until his dad clarifies that I only meant, like, a visit over Christmas, not for you to come stay in America. That's not going to happen, Connor. Uh, At his grandma's house, Connor goes, and he touches the hand of the antique clock, and it comes off in Connor's hand. The monster then comes and tells Connor a second story. In a valley filled with factories, there lived an old apothecary who the people mock because they prefer modern modern medicine. In the village, uh, there was a parson with two daughters, and they had a yew tree near their house. The apothecary wanted uh, to come and use the yew tree to make medicine, but the parson would not let him cut it down. Uh, 
The parson is concerned about the villagers believing in superstitions and he preaches against the apothecary. Uh, but when his daughters become sick and modern medicine can't heal them, he asks the apothecary to come help. The parson says the apothecary can have the yew tree to make medicine and he'll preach sermons in praise of the apothecary if he will help. The apothecary asks the parson if he'd give up what he believes in and the parson says he would give up everything to save his daughters. The apothecary then says there's nothing that he can do and the next day the daughters die. That night the yew tree uh, awakes and becomes a monster and kind of thinks the monster is going to attack the, uh, the apothecary, but instead it attacks the parson's house. The monster says the parson attacked the apothecary when times were easy, but he would throw aside his beliefs when times were ha- hard. Connor starts helping the monster to destroy the parson's house. Then we cut to Connor standing in his grandma's living room and everything is trashed. The clock, <laughs> porcelain figures, furniture, it is all broken. Connor looks around confused and then his grandma walks in. She takes it all in and she screams and knocks over a cabinet and then just leaves the room. And Connor hears her crying in her room that night. The next morning, Connor's dad is there. His grandma's already gone to the hospital. Connor asks if he's going to be punished and his dad says, what would the point of that be? When Connor My sees kids, his mom... So- I've watched, oh, I've yeah. watched this with my kids now a few times uh-huh. and that, that scene when Connor destroys his grandma's house is like, that leaves a strong impression on young children. <laughs> it's really, he's very thorough. And his dad actually says that the next morning when they're cleaning up, he goes, you know, <laughs> you, you know, champ, you've just done a real thorough job here. <laughs> uh, and the actor does have like a really good job of like looking around in confusion and awe simultaneously at what he's taking in. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting difference between the, the book and the, and the film is that the book really plays up the idea that there's no way that Connor can, can do uh, that kind of destruction on his own. Like mm. there's a strong implication that the, that the, that the monster is way more real in the novel than in the, than in the film. Well, that's, uh, we're going to save that discussion and we may circle back to the I Kill and Giants graphic novel for that discussion later on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see where, where, okay. So Connor goes to see his mom at the hospital and she's very frail. She says, because the chemo isn't working, they're going to try a medicine that's made from a yew tree. Connor says, that's the tree in their yard. And she says, yes, but they're not going to use that one from their yard because that tree is like a friend to them. That night, Connor goes to the tree and calls for the monster, and the monster says it's not time for the third story yet. Connor asks what's going to happen to his mother, and the monster says, do you not already know? In school, at 12.07 in the afternoon, Connor is bullied in the cafeteria. The monster comes and tells Connor the third story about an invisible man who just wants to be seen, but people are used to not seeing him. Connor charges the bully and beats him up. In the principal's office, we find out the bully is in the hospital. The principal says they'll talk about the incident at a future date, but there's no point in punishing Connor right now connor visits his mom and she says that the new treatment isn't working and there are no more treatments to try she tells him it's okay to be angry and break things and if he's too angry to talk to her that's okay because she knows what he needs to say even if he can't say it connor goes back um, to his and his mom's house and he yells at the yew tree the monster comes and connor asks why didn't heal his mother and the monster says she couldn't be cured and he didn't come to heal connor's mom he came to heal connor the monster says it's time for the fourth story 
Connor sees the cliff from his nightmares and he holds his mom and she's falling over the edge and Connor loses his grip and his mom falls. The monster tells Connor to finish the story. Connor finally screams that he just wants the story to end. He knows his mom will die and he wants it to be over. He wants it to be finished. This is the truth that Connor has been hiding. Connor says he deserves to be punished and it's his fault that she's going to die now. The monster tells Connor that wishing to end pain is a very human wish. Connor says he didn't mean it when he wished his mom would finally die and the monster says Connor did and didn't mean it. Connor asks how that's possible and the monster says humans are complicated creatures full of contradictions we believe lies with our humans believe in the lies when they know their lies because the truths uh they also know are too painful to be believed connor wakes up on the ground next to the yew tree and his grandma is shaking him awake uh she says they have to get to the hospital and they get there right as his mom is dying the monster appears in the room with connor and says it's the end of the story and he must speak the simplest of truths connor tells his mom he doesn't want her to go the monster says the story ends with the boy holding tight to his mother so he finally is finally able to let her go connor's mom looks at the monster and smiles as she's dying connor is now living with his grandmother and it's better than before uh connor finds a book of his mom's old art or, or i think the grandma gives him a book of his, uh, his mom's old art and he, in there he finds a drawing of the yew tree as a monster and sketches of the characters from the stories that the monster told the end <sighs> then i get my box of tissues and Blow my nose. (laughs) I showed this to uh, some students in a class last year, and they were like, You have to warn us the next time you're going to show us a movie like that. I had some uh I had some students that were doing some serious ugly crying at the end of that movie. I uh so uh, there's a class I teach uh, every year or two where the main text is just the graphic novel mouse about the Holocaust. That's the mm-hmm. only text we're talking about. But then uh, we address also other stories that uh, uh, use the Holocaust. And so I show the film life is beautiful sometimes. Oh yeah. That's and at the end one. of it, it's always like, we're just going to watch the credits for a minute. Cause students always ask me to leave the lights <laughs> off for a few minutes. Yeah. At the end of life is beautiful. <laughs> yeah, totally. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, so I'm I'm interested. You said you show this with your students, and when we did the graphic novel "I Kill Giants," which is about a girl who is kind of living in her own world, where maybe she is fighting giants to save the world, or maybe she's not, uh, as she just like avoiding dealing with her mother dying of cancer. Hmm. Um, and Mav said when he teaches that graphic novel, he asks at the end, "Are the giants real?" And he said his students are often split, like they argue both ways whether mm-hmm. the giants were there or not um, with a monster calls. When you talk about with your students, do you ever discuss is the monster there or not? Um, no, that hasn't, it hasn't come up in a, in a direct way like that. I was mm-hmm. really intrigued with the novel because in the novel, uh, like the, the night after the first visit, his room is full of you needles from the yew tree. And and after the second visit, his room, the, the floor of his room is covered with, um, with berries from the yew tree. And then uh, after, I think it's after he destroys his grandma's house, like in the floorboard growing up from, from the floorboard is a little baby yew tree. Oh, okay. And then, uh, and then they talk about like the destruction that he causes both in his grandma's house and the way that he beats up the, 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 the bully. bully that it, it it's implied that he has some kind of like superhuman strength or something like there's no way that that a 13 year old could do that kind of damage so it's so it's more heavily implied that there's something 
supernatural uh, going on in the novel. I think that the the film downplays that, yeah. and you get the impression that it's just kind of in his head. And um, as a kid, I remember hating movies that left it ambiguous about <laughs> whether something happened or didn't happen. But uh, I find now I love those stories. I do too. <laughs> I really much prefer it as an adult when it's left completely ambiguous and you can look at it either way and find the story satisfying. Yeah. I was watching it today with my kids and I think one of my kids asked, you know, is, is the monster really there? And I said, Oh, what do you think? And they're like, I think he is. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Go for it. Oh, it was at the end. Is the monster there with the mom at the end? Can she see him? And then, I mean, it's pretty clear at the end that the mom sees him and, uh, but then yeah. when you find the book, you could argue this is just stories that she had told him that he had forgotten, kind of like from when he was a kid. You know, like all the three stories the monster tells, those were stories that you see sketches of in her book. Maybe these are right. stories that the mom had told him as bedtime stories and he had just forgotten, you know, some something like that. Yeah, well, the other, the other part of this that's interesting, I don't know if you noticed, uh, is um, the idea of the grandpa. So the grandpa is the great, absent figure in the film who's who's the grandpa who's sigourney weaver's husband and um there's not really a lot said about him sigourney weaver is it doesn't seem possible that she could be the mother of the felicity jones character because she's all kind of hardness and routine and the clock and uh you know represents that yeah, she, she wears pants suits and she represents this very like archetypal male character in the in the film. And Felicity Jones is like an artist and she's all about uh you know exploring her imagination. She wanted to go to art school. Um but did you notice in the pictures in the family pictures who the grandpa is? I did not. Okay, so yes, so it's Liam Neeson. It's Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson is the grandpa in the in the family pictures on the walls, and there's you see him that. a couple of different times. Uh, and so, and Liam Neeson is the voice of the monster, and so I think that it's not. I mean, I don't think that's an accident. <laughs> like, yes. oh well, here's a picture of Liam Neeson. We'll just put it in, right? Like, yeah. um, I think they're making a strong connection that uh, that 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 strong i mean that, that green man n- nature archetypally feminine uh character is is the monster which is also kind of the spirit of the grandfather which then also kind of makes sense that maybe those are stories that the that the grandfather told to felicity jones and then uh-huh. maybe she told him or or that they're archetypal right that they're that they're things that exist in in the subconscious that go, you know, beyond any, you know, any single telling. Right. But I was, when uh, I saw him in the pictures, I was like, wait a second. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you see him like really briefly once and then there, and then the camera lingers on it just for a second. Uh, later on they're, they're like by a train and he's got mm. a little baby, you know, his, his daughter as a young girl in his arms. As soon as you started to say it, I was like, oh, it's going to be Liam Neeson, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's Liam Neeson. It is Liam Neeson. So right, what was your so- impression? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in knowing, you know, like the movie ends and what was your, what was your reaction to this? 
I was most taken with the visuals that were presented. Uh-huh. Um, and I, it's one of those stories in terms of like the final event of the mom dying. Like you kind of know that from the opening scene. Sure. <laughs> like when, when he gets up and makes breakfast and the mom is talking about going to chemo, it's like, mm, this is going to be <laughs> one of those. <laughs> uh, and so like the, that that part of the plot, yes, it hit me, but also like you're, I, I felt kind of emotionally prepared the entire movie for the mom sure. to die at the end, uh, and I was not looking for like a miracle yew tree uh, medicine to to heal his mom or anything like that. Right. Uh, but the visuals are what I think are going to linger with me, particularly the the first story um, about the prince. Um, it does yes. this very uh, painterly animation, but it's watercolors. Into- yeah, but but like it's letting the watercolors bleed as you're watching it, you know that mm-hmm. kind of feel. Um, and it was that that was really stunning to to see that, and that's why I was like thinking about like in the book form, what does that actually look like? <laughs> because uh, <laughs> as you're as you're watching the art happen and bleed and move uh, for the animation, it's not something I could remember quite, uh, you know, quite that style or exactly that style being presented before, and I I really quite quite liked that touch. Yeah, so you know in the end when she when he when he finds his mom's book and she's painted in these um black and white watercolors. Yeah. That's basically the, the style of all of the illustrations in the novel. Oh, okay. Yeah. They're done in these uh, kind of um like really washed out uh watercolors with well, lots that of textures well. and very well translated for this. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and, and so when you're asking like what, what stands out and I, I, part of me though, was like very much saying like, well, I just read, I killed giants and I, I was trying not to make <laughs> the, the comparison. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's what we, we did, you know, a full episode on less than a year ago. And so it was sure. kind of staying with me. Uh, and yet, uh, I'm glad that we have both of these texts, even though they're dealing with kids and the fantastic and is it real or is it not as they're trying to ad- address a parent's dying as they're coming of age themselves. Um, and I thought the performances were really strong and uh, Liam Neeson's as voice as the monster uh, definitely works. <laughs> like yeah. that is, that's one of those voices where it's like, Oh, the, the voice cast Liam Neeson. Oh really? As Aslan or as a monster and a monster calls, whatever. It <laughs> it's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. So like well-made and, uh, and the, uh, the story works. I still find myself like, I, I want to rewatch it and look for all the connections that are clearly being made and like the stories that are being told and mm-hmm. uh, his life. And what are the lessons that are, he's supposed to be learning. I think I've got some surface level connections, uh, but I just imagine there's deeper ones that would be rewarded through looking at it again, more in depth. Yeah. I mean, I've probably watched this five times in the last six months or, or well, I'll say the last eight months. <laughs> I've, I've seen it quite a few times and it def- it definitely holds up to multiple viewings. And um, it is, I think thematically it, it is, um, it was kind of challenging, right? And, yeah. and even the, like the conversations that I've had with my kids are like, so what is the point of the second story, you know, <laughs> or the first story? Like, uh, and, and he summarizes it pretty well in the end uh, where he says humans are complicated. And then 
uh, and then Connor says, so what am I supposed to do in the face of this immense complexity of life? And the monster says, you have to speak the truth. <laughs> and um, like, there's something about those final, there, there, are, there's a couple of things that, that hit me emotionally really hard. One is, uh, when Connor realizes that the monster is not there to save the mom, but to save him. Uh, and the second is when the monster just demands that Connor speak the truth. And, yeah. um, in, in, <laughs> it, it, he's, he can be a very scary monster. And especially in the end when he's, when he's, you know, yelling Connor down saying, speak the truth, speak the truth. And I, I say that to my kids all the time now, speak the truth, Connor O'Malley. <laughs> but, but I think that, I mean, I think that that is not an unimportant message uh, to but, be sending out into the world today. Like yeah. speak the truth, you know, but it's of course not- things are complicated. Yes, it's not a simplistic message. It is openly acknowledging that you can be holding contradictory truths within yourself. Sure. Uh, you know, like when Connor says, like, I just want this to end. I want my mom's suffering to end. I want this long, drawn-out suffering for me of watching my mom suffer and knowing what the end is going to be. Like, I just want this to be over, but I also don't want my mom to go. And the monster's like, yeah. <laughs> That's, yes. That you you can have both those truths and it, and um when when we think of like just the binary of well something is true or false this is saying like you noted one of the grand themes of it is speak the truth but also know (laughs) that it's not as simple as well there is one truth and one falsehood or anything like that yeah well there's a difference between saying you know truth is relative so just you know whatever dude like just speak your truth man you know like (laughs) there's this whole woke thing these days about like, just speak your truth or, you know, speak power to truth or like the narrative is true. So the facts, (laughs) what's that? Uh, Truth to power. I think you said speak power to truth Truth to power. Sorry. (laughs) I know I'm not woke. Uh, But um, there's a difference between, between that, like, you know, truth is whatever you want it to be, or the facts don't matter as long as, you know, it feels true, then that's, then that's okay. Uh, and everybody does this. Uh, so, you know, like I, I'll, I, I can pick it woke people, but I can do the same for, you know, <laughs> ultra right wing crazies. Uh, cause every, but everybody does this when we do this in our, in our own lives where we just ignore the truth because, uh, it doesn't tell this, you know, it doesn't feel like it's the thing that we should say or, or something. And I just, uh, I, I appreciate the monster's insistence on speaking the truth. And Connor says, I, I, I want it to be over. And he says, yes, that is true. And he says, you know, there's a part of me that wants my mom to die. And he says, yes, that is true. And then Connor says, and it's all my fault. And the monster says, and that is not true at all. <laughs> and just just to be able to like see the world clearly. And and there's a di- that that is very different than saying, you know, whatever you want to be true is true. That's not mm-hmm. what the monster is saying. He's no, saying the truth is complicated and there can be contradictory truths or apparently contradictory truths. Uh, 
that you can hold in your head at the same time. But that's different than saying there is no truth or truth is all relative or truth is just whatever you want it to be. Truth is in the eye of the beholder. It's all subjective. That's not that it's not what this film is saying. And, uh, and it's also happens to not, not be true. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I think, think saying like all truth is, is relative is actually kind of simplistic because then you're removing complexity and nuance and just saying, well, sure. whatever your, your perception is. Um, but also saying there's only, a truth and everything else is false. That's also too simplistic. And this film, which is largely, well, I mean, it, I can't remember how it was marketed, but it's kind of a kid's movie is saying, let's uh, address some of the great complexities of what it means to be human. Yeah. I wonder if that's why it, one of the reasons why it struggles in the box office or it has, it, it struggled in the box office is because it looks like a, it look, I, when did the BFG come out? Didn't the BFG come out? Wow. Well, it came uh, it out. Was, a couple years before this, but it also struggled at the box office, and it had Steven Spielberg behind it. You know, I know, but it it it, it looks like a kids' movie, you know, because it's this tree monster thing. The BFG was 2016, and this was 2016. Well, uh, yeah, I think they both came out. We had date on. Yeah, uh, yeah, 2016. So, but it, this is a PG-13 movie, and. For, I mean, I think it, I wouldn't say like it earns its PG 13 rating. It's not like, you know, there's not hardcore swearing or, no. you know, like there's bullying and kissing the, or the, anything. The in that. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but there are definitely PG 13 things. The, the bullies beating up on Connor. Um, that's like, those are hard images to watch. And, um, and the monster's scary. Like it's a legitimately scary monster. You don't want to take your uh, your five year old to watch this film, especially if they you know have a hard time sleeping after they see scary things because it's a scary movie. And so it, I wonder if the film itself is like too old to be a kids movie, but too young to be <laughs> a, an adult uh, an adult movie. You know? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, it's like somewhere kind of stuck in the middle. Uh, it's dealing with with complicated themes in a really sophisticated way. Um, on in some ways and in and in you know what some people may consider to be you know kind of simplistic trappings of a fairy tale with with a tree monster and so i think i wonder if it just kind of had a hard time fitting into uh this you know psyche like what what is this yeah movie like exactly? our our genre codifications that give us comfort in knowing what we're going to get this movie like you said it, it kind of feels like a kid movie on one hand but you can't take kids to it on the other hand so we don't quite know what to do with it and i think marketers at least in the united states didn't quite know how, how to <laughs> how to promote it yeah they really dropped the ball and i don't think uh i mean i, I that's one of the interesting things about this is that I, I hadn't quite put my finger on it until we were talking about like how how do you describe this or like who is the audience for this and that genre um identification of it and, and the so some of the difficulty where like okay well yeah fairy tale coming of age uh family drama like all the, all those you know fit but at the same time there's there's um a little difficulty in in really identifying what this this story is um and, and then the next step of well then who is the story for and uh, it turns out it's for me. I quite liked it. <laughs> um, so, so, so when you find it, I think you're going to like it. But 
um, like when you go to a bookstore and you're like, well, I want a mystery. They have big signs saying, well, here's your mystery section and right. you know, or here's your romance. And sometimes we're like, we want to know what it is that we're getting into. And this film, I think defies that a little bit. Yeah. Which, which if you're willing to give it a shot is totally delightful. I think <laughs> to come across something like this, that's so, uh, it's, it's so different. It's hard to, to know what to expect uh, going in. But um, like I said, I've shown this to a, a quite a number of people <laughs> over the last six or eight months. And uh, by and large, um, I have had really good responses, positive responses from people. So uh, let's, do you want to talk a little about about uh character arcs like who sure. who is changing like I, I we noted at the beginning we we know what's happening with his mom and her character journey is it's not the most transformative for her <laughs> like she's she's in a really bad spot at the start and she dies at the end so let's talk about connor and what we see uh with him like what how is connor at the end of the film different than connor at the beginning of the film well um, it's, there's that interesting line that the, 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 the monster says at the end that the story ends with a boy uh, holding his mother and because he's holding her, he's finally able to let her go. And, um, there's, it, it's like Connor never stops trying to hold on to his mom. So in the beginning, uh, it's all about you know, she's going to get better. And, you know, he's telling his grandma, she's going to get better. Like he's like, he's trying to hold on to her. Um, but it's in a, it's in a way that is maybe, maybe he's not accepting the, the reality of the situation. Um, although it's hard to blame him because his mom keeps telling him, yeah, this medicine's going to work. I'm totally going to get better. And then you get in the middle section, um, this discussion of the cure and that belief is belief is half the cure, belief in belief in the cure, uh, belief in the future that will be after the cure or something like that. Um, and so, so it's hard to f really fault him and say, Oh, look how immature he is. He believes his mom's going to get better and she has cancer. It's like, well, I don't think that that's a horrible thing to really try to, you know, try to believe that, that this is going to happen. Cause <laughs> Because sometimes people do get better from cancer, and I, I think that a lot of it has to do with their their ability to to trust and believe that this is that this is going to happen. But it's also not that simple, and and he's really struggling with the the complexity of of all of that. Uh, and he's thirteen, and his par his parents are divorced. Uh, his mom's dying of cancer. He's got a lot on his plate. And well, it's and hard I gotta to say, fault him. we don't see a whole lot of the dad not coming across as a winner <laughs> in, in a lot of this as, as the most supportive dad in the moment of his son's greatest trauma. He's not really stepping up to the plate. Well, he tells him, you know, you got to be brave. And it's like, yeah, I think we need, you know, probably more than just the, you know, the pep talk that says you got to be brave when things are hard. Like dude who left your wife because, because what? Like <laughs> that whole, I, I mean, he, you're, you're right. He doesn't come off as like the greatest, the world's greatest dad. Um, yeah. he's also, uh, what, what does he say? We didn't get happily ever after. Most people just get messily ever after. Um, 
uh, okay. Um, I and, I, and also, I'm here. I don't for know a if few this days, is making anybody no. feel any better. I'm here for a few days. I would actually be here when your mom dies. Uh, yeah. You know? So, but I'm, I'm saying like that kind of like any notion that we have of of like Connor struggling like his support system isn't great that's around him (laughs) no and he just i mean he's angry at the beginning of the film he's he's angry he's sad he's lonely uh he's frustrated his mom is dying he's being bullied at school and like really rough bullying yeah i mean he (laughs) it really is uh it's not like you know they're pouring their milk on his peanut butter sandwich or something and ruining his lunch. They're beating him like physically beating him and he's completely withdrawn and isolated. There's that great, uh, there's a great shot of all the kids walking into the school and it looks, uh, it's almost like water flowing and they flow around Connor. Who's just standing in the middle and nobody's touching him. They're going around. Um, and the teachers try to reach out to him. Hey, are you okay? You look tired. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Like he's just, he's just having a really, really hard time. And, um, and, and by the end, like, it, it's not like it's sunshine and unicorns, <laughs> Yeah. but, but he is able to come to, uh, at least to recognize in himself kind of what's going on and and that's like the the great help of the monster is that uh he helps him recognize the fact that you can have these contradictory things and that they're they're all totally legitimate right like it's okay to feel uh like you want it to end that's the most the the monster tells him this is the most natural of human instincts is to wish for the end of our own pain yeah and the end of the pain of people that we love and uh, and that's an important thing for, for Connor to recognize. Uh, it's also important for him to recognize that that doesn't mean that he doesn't love his mom and that he can hold her uh, or, or hold on to her in a way that's different, that's not terrified. And that's, that's the difference, I think, in the, the way that he's trying to hold on to everything, this kind of desperate grasping, like almost grasping at straws kind of, uh, holding on to to his mom and holding on to the situation early in the novel or in the in the film, and in, in the end when he's holding her, he's actually just holding her, right? Like uh, because he loves her, and and he he's willing to kind of accept uh, what's what's coming. It was resignation uh, in the end that we don't see earlier on. It's like I think it's kind of a complicated arc. Like it's it's very nuanced. Mm-hmm. And like, there's some of those lines, like "Speak your truth," where it feels like this is summing it up. But at the same time, like the more you think about it, you see how the story itself kind of resists that that simple message of like, okay, this is this is what Connor needed to learn, or anything like that. Um, he said it's kind of complicated and messy. He has transformed from where he was at the beginning to where he is at the end. He's not, like you said, it's it's not like sunshine and rainbows <laughs> at the end at all. Um, and I'd, uh, I think 
he still needs a better support system <laughs> in his life than what we've seen. Well, he's going to get it from his grandma. And there's the scene in the car where she says, you know, you and I, we're not the perfect pair. <laughs> it's like, we're, we're not a great fit. Say, we're not a great yeah, fit. Yeah, we're not we're a great fit. But yeah, yeah, something. But we're gonna we we have to make it work, or we're going to make it work. I love that scene. That was a really good scene. I too. I think Sigourney Sigourney Weaver, Weaver is very is, good at uh, this. She she's a good actress. I think. I think she could make it. <laughs> she's she's got whatever it is. She's got it. <laughs> um. No, I, I I agree. I love the scene in the car, and um, <laughs> every time she she swears, my kids say, "Dad, she just said a swear word." <laughs> like, Yes, she did say a swear word. And she says it so loudly and clearly. <laughs> there's no there's no mistaking it. Um but yeah, he does he is going to have a support system and it's not like uh, you know every, everything is transformed. Everything's way better, but but it's all more manageable because because he's able to to speak the truth to recognize the the truth of the complexity of the situation and i mean i I mean it it sounds really absurd to say it this way but this fantasy monster who may or may not be there is key to him accepting reality (laughs) yes yes uh, absolutely and uh, i mean this gets into that what to me is this really interesting um, thing about stories and truth. And there's, there's a way in which, you know, the truth that we, that we see in stories is, you know, maybe the most important thing of all. And, and there's another way of looking at, at stories and truth. That's just, you know, garbage, <laughs> which is the thing where you, you, you know, you, you see a, a, a political ad and there's all these people rushing across the border into the United States. And it's like, Oh, look at, we're being invaded by Mexico. And then somebody says, actually, actually those pictures are not even of the U S Mexican border. And then somebody says, but it's the narrative that matters. It's the story that matters. the truth of the story that matters. And I'm like, I, like, I kind of get what you're trying to say, but you're totally wrong. (laughs) That's not what we, that's not what we mean when we say that the the truth that comes out in stories is, is sometimes the most important truth of all. That's not what we're talking about. (laughs) We're not talking about willfully (laughs) bending the truth to fit your narrative. Uh, We're, we're talking about how taking a step back from the, whatever the messy details are of any specific context and looking at uh, something like a story that 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 is dipping from really deep, like archetypal wells, can help us to see patterns uh, that that we may not see in real life, and that those patterns uh, have a kind of truth to them, a kind of symbolic truth that that matters. It's very different than just putting together whatever we want and then saying, "Well, this tells a story that's true, and so you have to accept that it's true." Let's talk briefly about the monster before we wrap up. Uh, I said at the top, that was one other character we want to talk about. What, how can we define this character, this monster, (laughs) the CGI Liam Neeson voiced tree with branches coming out and all of these crazy angles off its back that 
wants Connor to speak his truth, but not till it's time to speak the truth. Mm-hmm. Is that like, I, I guess it's visually interesting. Liam Neeson does a great voice performance. Is there a character there or is this just a device to carry on the story? What is your thought there? Um, well, I would say maybe neither of those things. <laughs> I, don't, oh, I don't know that we have. Nasty, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think that it's just a device. And I also don't think that it's, it's a, like a fully fleshed out, you know, character with psychology with, you know, like an internal psychology and, a and an arc. Um, it's way more, it's an archetype. It's, it's, uh, it's the embodiment of, of nature and intuition and, um, which is why at times it can be so beautiful and so gentle and other times it can be so destructive and scary, which is exactly what nature is, right? <laughs> like, yeah. uh, nature is beautiful, except for when it's trying to kill us. And it seems to just sort of alternate between both of those things, <laughs> uh, which is what the monster does. Um, there are times when he's really, really scary and, uh, and violent. Uh, violent, you know, with Connor, violent with all the buildings. He just goes around and smashes everything all the time. Uh, but there are also moments of um, like real tenderness uh, and and beauty, and I think this um, this dichotomy, this binary between you know like the nature, chaotic, kind of chaotic nature, and uh, structured um, you know like civilization, probably best embodied in the form of the grandmother which is why again you have like the grandmother and the grandfather as these two great um archetypal figures and connor has to be able to come to terms with both of them um so yeah he's not a character in the sense that he has any kind of an arc but he's also not a plot device he's it's it's more than that he's like the embodiment of of this uh like they call him the green man or, you know, like nature, the, the tree that comes walking. Uh-huh. I'm so, yeah. I, I like everything you said. I'm still trying to like get a handle on how to like what my feelings about the monster as a figure in the story are, are you know, I don't think I'm going to resolve it during this podcast. Well, I mean, <laughs> Which, I, I really I, like, I guess like there are times when we do, stories on this podcast where like we get to the end and we're kind of like, well, that's it. You know, I've, I've said my piece. I don't <laughs> feel like I've fully said my piece on the monster calls in this one discussion that we're having. Yeah. I mean, I, I really think that to understand it, uh, I mean, I've mentioned archetypes now probably 50 times in the last hour, but, but I think that they're really important and you know, there are these visually, it, it it happens all the t- all the time when the the tree invades the grandma's house and they destroy it. Um, this is like chaos and order, basically. Uh, but you also see it in um, this incredible shot in the in the fourth the fourth story when they're in the churchyard and <clears throat> all of the churchyard falls into this big abyss. And Connor's sitting in the middle and um on the 
so this the screen is split right in the half and on the right hand side is just a big black void and on the left hand side is this like it looks like a checkerboard the churchyard has been broken up so you have this like checkerboard uh green space on the left and then this just black abyss on the right connor's this little tiny speck uh in the middle and then it's right after that that he falls into the abyss and then the and then the tree catches him and then he falls asleep he's a little, little fetus in the in the in the monster's hand and he sets him down he says you know now you can sleep and then and then connor's reborn after that right like that's his um death and rebirth and the hero's journey uh-huh. uh so that's a good story i like it todd i i think uh this this bayona guy could be a quality director we should keep our own <laughs> an eye on him really it, i i would love to come back sometime and talk about the impossible it's a it's an outstanding film um i don't think i'll ever watch the orphanage again <laughs> it's so <laughs> scary it is so scary it's it's not only is it scary like it's um it's a very kind of uh oh he he's definitely taking um cues from uh like Shyamalan and uh and Hitchcock and it's like a very kind of understated scary um it sounds a bit like um a quiet place where like there's just constant tension yeah yeah but there are moments of just like there are images that are in my head after watching that film that I will never get out of my head like just <laughs> horrific uh things where it totally earned its um its rating it's rated R and it's basically rated R for like two scenes uh that use I mean two shots basically that last probably a total of five seconds between both of them combined and it's like yep that's enough because i'm scarred for life (laughs) 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 and the rest of it is all just you know doors closing and it's a ghost it's a ghost story uh but it's super scary and um yeah i won't be showing that to my students (laughs) one of my students said that her spanish teacher showed them that uh, movie in her um in her high school Spanish class. I'm like, wow. Uh, yeah, I was, I was very surprised. She said, yeah, we watched that in my high school Spanish class and I really do not want to watch it ever again. And I said, I totally understand where you're coming from. Uh, he definitely does know how to do scary. This movie is not um, at the upper limits of what he's capable of <laughs> as far as scary goes. Um but the impossible is uh, awesome. I would love to come back and, and talk about it anytime. And I'm excited to see what uh, what comes next from our friend by Yona. He's good. All right. I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 232, when we talked about I Kill Giants, or 192, when we talked about The Ocean at the End of the Lane, or 132, when we talked about Sing Street. I thought about both of those for very different reasons. Oh, with the monster I, calls. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm uh, I'm with you 100% on both of those uh, on both of those recommendations. Yeah. 
Uh, you can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at Jadorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Is a Minute. And our Facebook fan page is at facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. Well, thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. And I'm Todd Mack. And this week we're discussing Connor O'Malley from the mon- uh, Oh man. <laughs> I just said, I just saw that I had and the monster typed in at some point and I forgot about it. And then I was like, <laughs> from the monster, uh, monster call. <clears throat>